Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 14th, 2019, the Operation Varsity Blues edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in New York at the CBS Radio Studios, specifically because I'm here with John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. Howdy, John. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, Likewise. I thought this was going to be the one day in history when a Plotz would be better dressed than a Dickerson. And it turned out even today, because I'm wearing a suit, which I haven't worn in a year. But even today, you've got a tie, and I don't even have a tie. Well, that's because normally I'm, by the time I get to the podcast, I've I've changed back into my Mr. Rogers from my TV clothes. But not today. But not today. <laughs> not today. Yeah. That other voice you have not heard yet <laughs> is Josie Duffy Rice. She's a senior reporter for The Appeal, co-host of the podcast Justice in America, joining us as a guest for the first time from Atlanta. Right, Josie? I am. I am in Atlanta. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. And you're here because uh, I guess Emily's on vacation, but I don't even know. She's just not here. And we've, we are very happy to have you instead. Thanks. Uh, uh, how is Atlanta these days? What's going on there? Is it, is it, Atlanta is, it an awesome is pretty great. Yeah. I just moved here about a year ago from Brooklyn and I can tell you, I am enjoying it a lot. Um, I do not live on top of my one-year-old son anymore, so that is um, a pretty a pretty big improvement. And and do you really mean that? I really mean it. I really mean <laughs> it. I'm surprised at how much I uh, I don't miss New York. I thought it was going to be really tough, but Atlanta's. I, I I love it here. I was talking to somebody recently who was um, had just come back from vacation and said uh, it's great to be back. And then they said it takes me about 24 hours before I really mean it when I say that. And so I wondered, having just moved. Myself a year ago, uh, mm-hmm. I always wonder whether I'm really telling the truth when I'm when I say the same thing you did. So that's where that question came from. I wasn't just being mindlessly skeptical. I have to tell you, I have my. I'm from Atlanta, and my parents live here, and so I have free childcare, which. Oh. I would pretty much move you anywhere buried, for that's that. That's called burying so, the lead. In yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. I did bury the lead. That's true. So um, that makes it completely worth it. Uh, I would live if anywhere. On this week's GabFest, the president proposes a budget. Wow, what a budget. What does it tell us about his priorities? Does it have a chance in hell of passage? Then the college admissions scandal that has ensnared the rich and famous and delighted just about everyone and horrified us too as well. Then we'll talk briefly talk about Beto because how can we not? And then we will more substantively talk about the revived debate about reparations for African-Americans and for for people who are victims of slavery. I mean, we'll define what it means. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and a reminder that we have two live shows coming up on March 27th in D.C., Wednesday at the Lincoln Theater. We are going to do a live show, which is going to focus on Emily's book in part, her new book, Charged. You'll get a preview of that and a discussion of that. And also, we're going to have a special guest for that show, which is Lauren Underwood, one of the new Democratic House members and a superstar and the Democratic Caucus is going to join us for that show. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for our D.C. show. 
And then on Friday, April 12th, we will be in Charlottesville, Virginia, as part of the Tom Tom Festival for a live show. And get tickets for that show also at Slate.com slash live. The president proposed a budget this week, $4.7 trillion. Holy moly. It is universally agreed to be dead on arrival since budgets these days are really just uh, fantasy. They are the useless documents and the way that spending is decided is everyone just waits and waits and waits and waits and waits and ultimately approves a budget that is the same as last year's plus a bunch of money for defense and for old people. That's what will happen this year as it has happened in every year low these past many years. So, John, still... The president's budget document is a remarkable document. What is remarkable about it? Well, I, I actually don't find Don't it, agree. You don't I, have to don't agree with me. That, no, I don't find it that much more remarkable. I mean, for the following reasons. Yes, as you say, it's always president's budgets are, are dead on arrival because Congress, no matter who's in control and power, says, okay, thank you very much. That's your what you'd like, but we're going to do the budgeting here um, as we've always done. It's even more dead on arrival because the House is now controlled by the Democrats. They've got their own priorities. Um, but they, they, the reason it's also super, super, super dead on arrival is the president's not interested in, in cutting Medicare, although there are Medicare cuts in his budget. And there are also Medicaid cuts in the form of block grants back to states. And we'll re- everybody will remember from the Affordable Care Act replacement fight that um, the debate when you block grant things back to the states is – A, should the states have the power and should it not be shared with the federal government? B, when you block grant something back, you give a fixed amount of money and then leave it up to the states. So the states have more freedom. They argue that the freedom that they have at the local level will uh, allow them to be more productive with the money. The alternative argument is that you cap the money coming from the federal government and the more productive they will be essentially will be by cutting people from getting Medicaid. So they won't find savings through efficiencies. They'll find savings through cutting the rolls. Also, people who signed up through Medicaid as a part of the Affordable Care Act, which is a major part of its growth in shrinking the ranks of the uninsured, would not be covered under the president's budget. So um, but he doesn't – he's not a policy person who's interested in those policy ideas. He's not like Paul Ryan who spent his year, his entire career kind of going after a certain theory about the way entitlement spending could be changed. Going after but never doing anything. I understand I mean, come that. On. I understand that. But my point is if a person who spent their career thinking about this was unable to do it, a person who never cared about it is not going to do it. So – in that way, he has no policy interest in this. Um, and then finally, he's not going to do anything in an election year that hurts his chances. And the only thing that could hurt his chances is if somebody cared about the size of the budget deficit. But what has been proved is turns out nobody cares about that anymore, despite years and years of talking about it. So, Josie, given what John just said, which is that it's DOA and actually he doesn't even want to cut Medicare, there's no real incentive to it. Why bother to propose a budget that proposes enormous cuts to Medicare that hugely cuts things like the EPA and the National Institutes of Health. Why bother to do it? And also, can, you know, causes gigantic deficits and a huge expansion of the national debt for years to come, which are things that he is allegedly against. Why, why propose something which, which doesn't appear to actually help him politically? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question because budgets are really statements of principles. That's what the point of proposing a budget is to say where your values are. And so we know this isn't going to pass. It might be that the president doesn't actually want to cut Medicaid this much, but it it is just fascinating to see a man who on the campaign trail said over and over and over again, they, you know, no cuts to Medicare, no cuts to Social Security. And here we're looking at it at $845 billion cut to Medicare. I mean, really, it's about $500 billion because they're saying it's cut from other places. But I mean, that's an, an, an 
outrageous amount of money um, that just negates every principle that he's said he stood for on the campaign trail. I know it might not be shocking to anybody to hear that Donald Trump may have not been telling the truth, um, but it is um, just another reinforcement that his values are not are not populist values in, in reality. One of the things, John, that I found so remarkable in this document was this is the first time in, I think, in American history that defense spending would outstrip all other discretionary spending combined. And, and this is a tragic consequence in my mind of a Republican governing philosophy, which kind of says that only one form of government service, which is service in the form of military service, is valued. And also the overweening influence of the defense lobby and contractors and sort of that that whole world on American life and in, on American government, I should say. Do you think, I mean, is there any way to reverse this trend towards we'll spend on the military and kind of starve everything else? Well, um, it depends which party you want. I mean, obviously, if there were a Democratic president and you had uh, Democrats in charge of the House and the Senate, the, the defense spending would go down. Although, you know, depending if the Democratic Party keeps defining itself in opposition to the president and sees an open opportunity with national security to be a more hawkish party, uh, then you might find the Democrats suddenly having to to build a defense force to meet all these foreign commitments that they that they might get um, America entangled in. The big problem with the budget is if you believe that having too much, having big deficits and debt is a bad idea, then there's really only one place you can go, which is Social Security and Medicare and really Medicare and the the high cost of healthcare inflation. And Well, I actually dispute that. You can raise taxes. You could say we're not going to deal with it Mm -hmm. on the spending side. We're going to deal with it on the revenue side. I think that's right. I think you – well, I think what you say is right. Seem, you both of those are, are have been poisonous for different parts of – Sure. Uh, but my point is I think sustain – I think if Medicare if, – if health inflation continues to rise at the rate it has been um, and you want to expand coverage and you want to cover existing Medicare beneficiaries – I, my feeling, and I'm winging it here, is that you're not going to be able to increase taxes as much as you would need to to keep pace with that. And because I'm now speaking in terms of you have to have a Democratic administration to do this and to have domestic programs funded at a level that people would find um, satisfying. The domestic discretionary portion of the budget has been cut pretty severely, and it isn't where you're going to get these savings. Also, by the way, a lot of the cost comes from interest on the debt. So that you can't you can't get rid of that either. Anyway, I don't think there are simple or easy ways to realign things along the lines you you put them. What's really, really, really interesting is whether the idea of – so if you have big debts and deficits, there's an argument that basically they can grow larger as long as the share of GDP is not overwhelming. But there is a lot of uh, debate on the left and the right now about whether basically big deficits and debt is not as big a problem as people have been saying. Right. To your point about defense spending, the interesting thing about this budget, too, right, is the State Department cuts. When we're talking about a administration that does not um, prioritize diplomacy um, and engaging with uh, other countries and um, in the way that uh, previous administrations have, the fact that we're, you know, he's talking about cutting the State Department by, I, I think it's, it's uh, like 10, $10 billion. That's, that's a pretty significant cut in light of um, the military spending, which is just, mm-hmm. once again, shows the priorities of how the president wants to engage with um, with the international community. 
Right. Well, it's but everything looks like a hammer for them, and the hammer is right. military, and they, exactly. they they're unable to see or implement diplomacy in any meaningful way. And I think actually, Josie, your point. Did you see that news about that they're closing these twenty one immigration offices that we keep overseas for people to help them deal with family visa issues and right. And, Right. And other immigration issues, and it's just now going to fall onto the embassies to deal with it, and it's going to create friction. People aren't going to be able to get into the country in the way they were. It's just going to generally just make it harder for people to travel here, see family, come in. Right. It'll be interesting to see if um, whenever there is a new administration of the next part of uh, the Democratic Party— whether it costs more to un- to repair, what the cost of repair will be, not just getting back up to the current levels, but what the cost of repair will be and then and what budget uh, strains that puts on people. Right. Yeah, that's right. It's like you break something. Yeah, there's a, it's, it's that, that cost of what, what is the, the entropy, the cost of entropy. It's like reassembling things mm-hmm. is so much harder than breaking them. Yeah. Hey, Slate Plus members. You get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts, of course. And today's bonus segment, we're going to talk about Nancy Pelosi and impeachment. Is the House Speaker right to resist impeaching the president? Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There is an absolutely glorious little scandal enriching the nation this week. Operation Varsity Blues. We all know the name now. 50 people were arrested as part of a scheme to get kids into elite colleges, including Yale, Georgetown, Stanford, USC, by cheating, by bribery, by chicanery. Those arrested include the proprietor of the scheme, Rick Singer, as well as some semi-famous actresses and not very famous, but sort of rich CEO types. And they used a variety of sleazy and maybe, I guess, illegal methods to help children of the semi-rich and kind of famous get into college. They bribed coaches to feign interest in kids as recruited athletes in sports the kids did not play. They bribed SAT and ACT proctors to improve test scores, even take tests for kids. In one instance, the head woman soccer coach at Yale was paid $400,000 to accept a student who did not actually play soccer. After the parents of that student paid this guy, Singer, $1.2 million. It's incredible. My favorite anecdote in this was the photoshopping of of pictures of the kids playing these sports that they didn't play, including some kid who was playing water polo. So they got a picture of him playing water polo and the water polo coach, who I guess was helping out in this in this uh, sleazy scheme, said, you know, no kid playing water polo ever gets that high out of the water. You need, you need to change that. <laughs> anyway, Josie, is there anything important about the scandal besides the the karmic satisfaction springing to so many people. And is that karmic satisfaction even earned? I mean, do we have a right to be outraged and delighted by the scandal? Gosh, you know, I, there's so much here. I, um, I work in criminal justice. This is one of the first times I've seen a scheme like this, if not the very first time I've seen something so extreme. So, um, so kudos on um, being inventive, I guess, to uh, (laughs) the people who were indicted. I mean, it's an interesting 
it presents an interesting question, I think, in comparison to, do you guys remember a few years ago in Atlanta, actually, the Atlanta public school cheating scandal? Um, yes. Where teachers, until I mean, this this has been going on since even till the last few months, they were appealing their sentences. It was the most money the state had ever spent on a case. There were twelve teachers that went to trial. You know, many of them spent time in in jail. And what we saw was this kind of national outrage over manipulating test scores and the the fact that it seemed so such an injustice to children. What we're seeing is that that happens across the board, and it's in, in Atlanta. It was a case of teachers trying to keep their kids' heads above water in a state that was cutting budgets left and right, and and didn't have access to kind of the education that the kids needed. And here, it's already very privileged people trying to get one more leg up, which is just another indication that this entire higher education, but even before that, the process is criminally unfair or much more often uncriminally unfair. Right. I mean, John, is this a case where the scandal is, is to use Kinsley's term, is actually what's legal? Yeah. So that that actually, yes. you know, there's the they're the back, what, what these guys sing are memorably called the backdoor, which is where you give millions of dollars to the university directly to build a gym and then they let your Dumbo kid in. Yeah. And well, then the front door is like actually tons of people, including people in our cohort, people who are educated it's a, it's it's a, the what's it called dream hoarding where they pay for sat tutors they get yeah. their kid playing you know being a fencer at an early age they mm-hmm. you know make them go on a service trip to guatemala to right. build houses and right. just brush up the resume and and buy their advantage and buy their their entrance into elite colleges that way and these people just did it one step further which is that they you know they did they cheated and they lied and they made stuff up but it's it's a difference in kind of degree rather than kind. Well, maybe not. They went one step further, but it was a pretty, you know, awful step. And I guess one of the big ways this step is different is, you know, at least somebody who gives to the university is helping the university. They're not just helping Mr. Right. Singer, who who verily right. was a singer because he went undercover and got all these people on tape and they're, the, the transcripts are <laughs> extraordinary. Um, but I think, you know, this allowed, this puts a, a you know, a spotlight on on everything you just said, and I didn't even know. And I feel terrible as the parent of of high school teenagers. Um, all these things, the 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 edit you're allowed to have people, or not? You're obviously not allowed to, but people hire editors to edit their their essays. Like, oh my god, I didn't even know that I happened. Know. It's it's and, shocking. And the test prep, you know, when when I did it, you went to um, you know some strip mall and some like grad student somewhere. To, taught you some other stuff. But this idea that, that people pay money starting in seventh and eighth grade to mold these kids, I, I read that and just thought, oh my God, how depressing for these kids that they are, that this is the signal they're getting and they are being trapped in that kind of a world, which, um, you know, ultimately will lead to unhappiness by their parents. So that's one problem. But the other is the, the big, 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 big problem here is all of the way, the way in which the the institutions are tilted towards people of privilege and there's a system of privilege and that when we have conversations about rebalancing the equities in society, um, that this has not been until now a part of that conversation. The other thing that I found really interesting in, in the coverage here is how it illuminated the role of the college counselor in general and just in in schools across the nation and how the increase in sort of private college counseling, um, admissions, training, testing assistance, all of this has come as we've 
siphoned out those resources from schools, right? Mm-hmm. Now I think it's one college counselor for every about 500 kids um, in the nation. And if you don't have those resources, you're literally fighting for 0.05% of, you know, of the access that having those resources allows you to get. It just, there's no possible way that, take this entire scandal out of the out of the picture, there's no possible way that applying to college right now resembles anything merit-based when you actually consider the level of resources that have to go into a kid getting access to a school like Yale or Stanford. Can I ask a legal question, Josie? You can. This is going to sound really stupid, but what's the crime here? Why is it a crime to fake a test score or pretend to be, pretend to be a, a, an athlete that you're not? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I'm glad you asked it. And if we had eight more hours, I would talk to you about conspiracy as a criminal charge. I It's one of my favorite topics. But one of the things that at least Singer was charged with was conspiracy to defraud the United States, which basically means committing fraud to an agency of the United States, not just it, it could be any agency. And here it's the Department of Education, right? All of these schools are getting federal funds. They're not just private entities. And so what we're seeing is all of these people are part of a conspiracy related, even if they don't know the other members of this of the conspiracy. That's how conspiracy law works, the doctrine. And the reason that this is a, a huge federal case is ostensibly because they are cheating the U.S. Department of Education or the departments that are, you know, funneling money to places like USC or Yale or any school that is getting more than, I think, $10,000 in federal funds. So it is in some ways an indirect frauding of, of the country. And that's not the only thing they were charged with. But most of this is about conspiracy charges. And the relevant body here is actually the, the federal money that's coming in to these uh, schools. John, do you think these kids, assuming they did not know, or at least were not perpetrators of the scam, should they be kicked out of the colleges they've been admitted to? Yeah, should the kids suffer for the sins of the parents? Um, Well, I guess you have two things. One is what's right, and then the other is think of the psychological damage. I mean, the poor these kids have to walk around school and have everybody know that they're big, you know, cheater-cheater pumpkin eaters. Um, Did you see the one that Lori Loughlin's daughter was— literally on a yacht with, with a USC yeah. trustee when she discovered this yeah. happened, yeah. you know, posting to Instagram and making YouTube videos, no doubt, of herself sunning herself on the yacht. So anyway, yeah. she may be a special case, but go ahead. Yeah, Sorry yeah. to interrupt yeah. you. <laughs> I, um, I don't know. I, I feel like um, I feel like it's wrong to make the kids, to punish the kids for what the parents did, but obviously they are there. Are they fruit of the poison tree? I just like that expression. So I always want to use that expression. But, um, you know, they're there under false pretense. They cheated to get in. I mean, somebody cheated on their behalf to get them in. So I don't know what the right the, the right thing here is. Also, by the way, those the kids, especially if they didn't know, and I know certainly it seems the case in, the, in Jane Buckingham, who's a marketing person out in L.A., her son said something to The Hollywood Reporter. Um, he doesn't appear to have known. And so think of the crushing blow to this kid which is one i'm not i wasn't sufficiently worthy on my own i had to have somebody cheat for me even though i didn't know about it and what you have just learned about your mother so yeah that's a pretty painful thing for a kid who is not well okay but i'm talking yes obviously the psychological blow is profound and they should and they will endure it and they are going to endure it josie should they be booted though 
Yeah, I think it's a hard question. My 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 assumption is they wouldn't want to stay, which I understand is not the point that you're getting at. But I can't imagine being that kid, being sort of so publicly embarrassed by this, by my own parents, and choosing to stay at 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 any of these universities. Should they be kicked out? My instinct is to say no, because they were not knowing participants of this crime. But that being said, look, there are limited spaces at these universities, right? There are other people who would have gotten that space if they had not taken it. People who actually played soccer, right? There are other people who actually, uh, kids who were working really hard. So I don't think, I don't think there's an easy answer here in terms of what should happen to these kids. There's the individual justice, which I think would not be kicking them out since they didn't know. And then there's the wider question of, if we're pretending that this is really about what you've done and what you deserve, can we kind of keep our reputation if we maintain, if we keep these kids here? That's interesting. I, I actually, you're mentioning soccer, actually, just I need to climb onto my high horse, which, <laughs> which if I were a, a teenager, I would join the equestrian team because then that would get me into college. The outrage, I continue to be just simply disgusted with the way in which athletic achievement has become this tool for college admissions and this, the yeah. overweighting of that. And we see that played out enormously in this case. So much so much of what is going on here is people faking athletic resumes in order to become to gain the status of recruited athletes and thus get in a special pool for admission. And you see it well, look, at Yale and Stanford you know, and, and and other places. I think there's something to that. And I especially think there's something to that when you remember how much of college sports is actually people coming from privileged backgrounds, privileged right. families. It's affirmative things action like the for sailing team at Stanford. Right. There's also the other side, which is that it, at least, you know, in some sports, particularly football and basketball, the ability to get a scholarship to college is a major, not, I wouldn't say it's an equalizer in any sort of large societal sense, but it's an equalizer for some of these kids who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford or maybe wouldn't be eligible for some of the other scholarships. So I think there are instances in which sports teams, I went to Columbia and I, you know, a lot of the kids who were on the the basketball and football team, we weren't very good, but they were on the team, you know, would not have gotten the opportunity to but go to a school like that. I, I totally, I totally dispute that premise. That is it. That's just simply we've accepted a system whereby that, that if you're trying to reach underprivileged kids and African-American kids in particular, if you're talking a lot about sports these days, that that that, that waiting, that waiting sports is a way to to kind of uh, get more African-American students into elite institutions. And that's that's a terrible system if we don't believe that athletics is the marker for what's going to make no. somebody successful in life. It's like much better. Why do we have to recruit African-Americans and other people from underprivileged backgrounds who happen to be good at sports? It's like it'd be so much better no, if the, I those resources were would... spent towards other kids. I would rather us create a system of equal education, equal access, equal opportunity, and um, and the ability for kids with less less resources to be able to get in without needing sports. Right? Until we create that system, I don't. I just don't think it is um, entirely deplorable that sports have played a role in admissions. I do think that the people who get the most attention for that, right, tend to be basketball players and football players, well, they're only here because they play sports. And what we actually see is that, like you said, the system is overwhelmingly benefiting white kids and kids who play sports like sailing. I don't, I don't know if you remember the sailing part of this indictment, but yeah. I found that to be quite, Incredible. quite, 
quite yeah. incredible. Those are the kids who are who are largely benefiting from from this system. Right. Right. I mean, with basketball and football, those are at least sports which which benefit universities economically. In right. General. Financially. Right. That, they're subsidizing the sailing nonsense. team. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. <laughs> subsidizing. <laughs> that's the that's the hilarious part. Wait. Right. So they're subsidizing the sailing team, which nevertheless is used to get people in who don't who can't make it academically. Right. Is that what we're right? That's essentially right. what we're saying. Yeah. Is there, is there anything going to result from this? Scandal? Well, the question is, what? Well, yeah, what would you... Clearly, the schools need to, you know, clean up their act. But on the other hand, the incentive for the school is to is to continue bringing in the money. You, you, you know, schools need alumni to donate big amounts of money. And so it's a significant benefit for them to think... I think, I think this is true. I'm just making this up, but it's got to be true that schools benefit from the idea that alumni think that they, if they give, it'll help when their kids someday go to the university. I find this to be a valuable, um, a valuable case, whether or not this actually changes anything, because it is showing that the emperor has no clothes here. It is changing the conversation, I hope, around affirmative action as well. Mm-hmm, when, mm-hmm. Um, when you're a black kid at college, at a school like Yale, Stanford, Columbia, wherever these um, kids were cheating to get into, and the tone of your acceptance is that at least part of the reason you got in is because you're black or you're a minority. You see that, you experience that every day if you're a, a black kid at a pr- pr- predominantly white school. And to be able to say that this is actually a red herring and that what's actually happening is that we are once again benefiting the same people who have already gotten the benefits through the school admissions process. I think the transparency here is is important, not just about this case, but what what you as as you said before, what it highlights about the admissions process, um, that the legal parts of the admissions process. I want to make one, I think, one other slightly different point, which is that there's been this effort, I think, on the right to really reduce the cultural cachet and cultural capital that comes with university education. We have we're almost creating mm-hmm. this political divide. In the educated classes, where university education is perceived as being hoity-toity and elitist and democratic, and and so there's been this kind of conservative attack on education, which is really bad and unsettling. We do not want to reduce the cultural capital that elite universities have down to zero. That is a bad system. Those these elite universities, in fact, universities in general, produce so much good in the world and in this country, and have been one of the great strengths of modern societies. And so to, of course, they can always be performed and improved and, and, and so forth, but to, to denigrate them entirely is problematic. On the other hand, I do hope that the scandal does something, which is, which is something that all of us, I think probably as adults have learned, which is that where people went to college <laughs> has almost nothing to do with them as human mm-hmm. beings, as them as colleagues, them as, as, as partners, them as, you know, productive workers or productive members of society. Great people come out of Ivy League institutions. Great people come out of state colleges. Great people come out of community colleges. They're great people don't go to college at all. And this is a good reminder that this, you know, the Yale degree. I have a daughter at Yale. I, you know, I'm excited that she's at Yale. It seems like a great school. But I certainly don't think that when she graduates from Yale, she gets something. She should have some sort of special advantage that that overweights her over somebody who went to Penn State or VCU or anywhere else. Right. But the truth is, of course, she will. And as you know, anybody that goes to these schools, this the it says nothing about you, but it 
dictate so much of what happens for the rest of your life when yeah. you have that Stanford, Harvard, um, Yale degree. It is a, a key to so much opportunity that you, even if you earned it, you earned it at 18, right? It says nothing about who you are at 40, but maybe 50, this will, Maybe the scandal will slightly diminish that advantage because people will be slightly more skeptical of what those degrees mean. Mm. Yeah, let's hope. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. All right, we're going to talk about the debate about reparations that is bubbling up in the Democratic presidential primary. Uh, but before we do that, we're just going to quickly just touch on on yesterday's news that Beto O'Rourke, the Texas uh, former House member, failed Senate candidate, is joining that Democratic primary. It's caused an extraordinary amount of excitement, considering that from where I sit, Beto O'Rourke looks like a you know, handsome, failed Senate candidate. John, why is there so much excitement about this fellow? And should there be? I think to the extent there's excitement, it's from the fact that he did two things in his race against, at least two things in his race against uh, Ted Cruz in Texas. One, he raised $80 million. That's a lot of money. And people think that's both a sign of enthusiasm and also you need money to run for president. But secondly, he was um, an effective both vessel and also avatar for people's feelings about Donald Trump, uh, the country, what they believed in. He was inspiring. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of so there are a lot of people who like him. He's in a bunch of different situation now, right? Obviously, he's running against 13 or 12 other announced candidates. Biden's likely to get in. Uh, others are thinking about getting in. Um, that changes the field. He's also running for a different office. And as you pointed out, he's, I, I think the closest analogy is, um, and this isn't bad, but is Lincoln, right? Like a, a, only a member of Congress with a failed Senate run. So, um, I, one wow. thing. Wow. <laughs> John, John Dickerson <laughs> compares um, Beto O'Rourke to Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> well, but in a very limited way. Um, and I think that what struck me uh, is in this there was a Vanity Fair profile that was a what was a part of his launch, which um, in which he is photographed on the cover by Annie Leibovitz. One of the things that contributed to his success in the Senate race was he kind of came out of nowhere as a as a spokesman for a certain passion in the Democratic Party. He's starting so expectations were low and he exceeded them. He's reversing that completely with a Vanity Fair cover. So I think that's tough. You know, your best day is the day you announce, and um, for him. It seems like it can only go down downhill, um, given the gravity of politics. But I just one thing from the from the Vanity Fair profile, which is quite glowing of him. There is a quote he says: "If I bring something to this, meaning the presidency, I think it's my ability to listen to people, to help bring people together, to to do something that is thought to be impossible. Impossible meaning getting people in Washington to agree." 
That quote is almost word for word what Barack Obama said in 2007 when people said, gee, you're kind of young. And he said, well, I have this special ability to bring people together. I think he would say now, uh, and I'm not riffing here, um, that, yeah, that's what he wanted to do. But politics is in a different place now. And and so I'm I'm fascinated that this is the that this is his pitch, that he has a kind of special quality to break through and whether that's a sign of um, naivete or whether that people want that or just what it is. Josie, is there anything about Beto's candidacy that moves you? He's of your generation, I think. You know, I find Beto to be um, a, a charming, engaging person. I am stuck on the idea that he lost by a, a wider margin than Andrew Gillum or Stacey Abrams um, into, you know, also conservative states, and yet they are not being hailed as sort of the second coming. Speaking of which, the debate that I don't think we would have had 10 years ago in a presidential campaign is emerging in the Democratic primary about reparations with uh, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Julian, Julian Castro, all backing some form of reparations in theory. And it's a question that all the Democratic candidates are being asked in one way or another. So, so Josie, where, where did this come from as an idea that that it, that it could that it could have currency in a democratic primary how did it emerge well, as something that people have to grapple with you know i think the conversation around reparations has been going on in certain places and communities for a long time i think in 2014 when tanasi coates published the case for reparations in the atlantic that was a seminal moment of shifting it into the mainstream conversation um, and it became a more mainstream con- you know it, it was asked once or twice i think in 2016 in presidential forums, town halls, and now obviously it's gaining even more traction. I, I think no one could say it better than Tanasi says it in his article, but it is a very workable um, and worthwhile idea and, and that we should be engaging with that has been largely treated derisively by um, people in power for decades, including President Obama. And I, I think the fact that now we're actually beginning to have a conversation about where this should play in terms of a litmus test for where a candidate really falls on on race relations in America is, is a great, great thing. When people are talking about reparations now, what are they talking about? What What is it? What do you think the terms of the debate are? You know, it's an interesting question because this is the question I find is the immediate response to to the suggestion that reparations might be an appropriate um, policy. What you hear, immediately hear is, well, what do they look like? You know, how would we do that? It doesn't seem workable. And the reality is that what is being pr- currently proposed is actually very workable. H.R. 40 would basically create a commission, a panel of people who would study and cr- decide what reparations could look like, and then we would go from there. But the the idea that there's one answer in terms of policy that any of us know exactly what would be the best workable answer, at least that anybody who doesn't you know study this full time, I don't know exactly what the best assortment of policies is that would create the best sort of reparations slate for um, for America. But I, what I do know is that it's a, a idea that we should be engaging with and that Democratic candidates should not immediately write off. I wonder whether a certain level of specificity from Democratic candidates should or shouldn't be demanded. It depends on where you are, fall on this idea. So you could imagine Democratic candidates all deciding kind of 
not collectively, but just through the daily campaign, that they'll all get behind a kind of commission to look at this idea, which is a w- kind of a safe space for for any Democratic candidate because it allows them to show commitment to the idea but not get weighed down by any of the specificity. Yeah. And it's in the specificity that's interesting um, because both, A, it's always interesting to just figure out how you work things, but also it opens up a larger question about what, what's the actual point? Do you get what the point is? And h- how far do you carry that point? You know, is it specifically descendants of slaves who should get reparations? Because clearly any person of color if you believe that the legacy of slavery continues in this very present day, then there are people who pay for slavery who are not direct descendants of of actual slaves. It's a really interesting conversation to have about the inequities in America and how you make up for those that are a part of America's original sin and how you balance them today. I guess what what I wonder about a commission is whether it it keeps candidates from being more specific, which would um, which would create all kinds of interesting, illuminating conversation. That is a reasonable concern and that you might be allowing candidates to punt the ball just to say later, well, I actually don't support any of these policies that the commission came up with. That obviously specificity in general when we're talking to someone who is running, you know, running a race to, to lead the country is critical. Um, what I would say is a couple of things. One is that Narrative actually really matters frame and, and making this mm-hmm. something that the fact that we could have 13 candidates say, yes, I support the idea of um, looking into, rep- you know, of creating a commission to establish reparations for for black people in this country is huge. This just yeah. is like, like we said, not wouldn't happen 10 years ago. And shifting this conversation into the mainstream is, you know, is an open door to itself that I think is a huge step forward. The second thing is that we're talking about centuries of dehumanization, of torture, of ownership, of treating people like property, of excluding them from every single institution known to our country, and then another century plus of de facto um, discrimination. We're talking about a, a, a country that has in is for most of its history done everything that it can to disproportionately harm and disproportionately isolate and disproportionately exclude black people um, in particular. What that means is that there is no one answer here. Mm-hmm. There is no answer that will do everything. There is no answer that will not have people on the line where it's do qualify, do not qualify, right? There are not any bright lines here because America has never drawn bright lines in how it discriminates. Um, It has discriminated across the board. And so I don't expect that like any sort of policy where you're trying to repair harm, there is an exact way to repair this harm that, um, you know, exactly aligns with the harm done or um, can fix every sort of social ill. But I do expect that it is a way to begin to account for a series of um, wrongdoings that America has really never grappled with and that continue to plague black families to this day. You know, it just occurs to me that actually you could totally reverse what I was saying, which is that you don't actually want to talk about specifics because any candidate could weasel out by saying, uh, I don't like this, and then not engage with your basic premise, which is that there is a narrative benefit to uh, 13 candidates to all supporting at least even the idea of engaging with this idea. 
I'm just thinking for either of you as a, as a kind of political question, I almost, I wonder if there's a way to separate two questions. So, two, so there's a, one of the things that seems very important and that I think ta pointed out so clearly that this is not about slavery alone. This is about slavery and then literally a century and a half continuing through to the present day of forms of, I mean, both things sort of carry over weight of slavery, so a huge wealth gap, but also literal forms of structural discrimination, legal structural discrimination that that massively harmed African-Americans disproportionately. And that acknowledging, the sort of admitting and acknowledging that fact and sort of not, and sort of saying, we, America, we did wrong, we continue to do wrong even after slavery, and African-Americans have borne huge cost for this, which which continues today and unto the children. And we were sorry as a country about that. That's question one. Question two is, now, what resources do we put towards fixing that? And I sort of feel like question one is a politically doable thing. Question two is really hard to do without enraging people if you couch it as simply as reparations. Whereas if you say, we need a wealth tax and we need free free uh, early childhood education and free daycare, and we need free universal higher education, things that benefit people who are poor or who are disadvantaged sort of start to make up the the wealth that they don't have and give them them more of an equal footing. That those policies, which are are kind of race neutral and wouldn't be directly connected to reparations, are things that that Democrats can get behind without bearing a political cost, which I think they will bear if they say we have to spend society's resources on this now. And I know that that is not satisfying because it is avoiding, it's it's basically saying we acknowledge we owe reparations, we're not going to pay reparations directly, what we're going to do is we're going to have a progressive progressive policies. But what's the, is that a cop-out, Josie? Well, not... To not get into the question about policy versus payment, although I do think that um, that both both deserve engaging with in terms of what's the best way to do, to do this, um, I, I do want to respond to the point about enraging a lot of people or how hard it is to sell this as a, an idea. I think that, and again, Tanasi explains the history of this very well, that like America actually has paid reparations in the past for wrongdoing. Um, it's not a completely new concept, um, and that it, it has been shown to have merit, for example, with Japanese Americans in our history. I think the other side of this, right, is that we tend to think of, of things, depending on who we're talking about, as either entitlement and taxing or investment. And I think of this as, as not just reparations in the sense that we are accounting for a sinful history, as David Brooks um, explained last week in the New York Times, but reparations in the sense that we are talking about communities where America has not invested in them Mm -hmm. and their education and their housing and their own wealth um, growth and job opportunities. And um, we're talking about communities that are overwhelmingly, when they interact with the government, it it generally does not benefit them. It hurts them because they're overly criminalized. They are not given this, you know, they don't have parks in their neighborhood. We're talking about people who have systematically been divested from as a people for centuries. And I would think of this as investment. In America, we tend to love investing in things. The idea of investment makes us really excited. The idea of paying, you know, 
you know, spending our money on something that doesn't benefit me does not. But that is what investment is, right? When you're investing in something that doesn't directly benefit you. This is investment in people that we have not invested in, you know, the civil rights movement was extremely important. Ending de jour discrimination was extremely important. But it's as as we see that both forms of discrimination have continued both through history until today, there has to be a way to account for that. And I believe, I deeply believe that doing so is good for all of us, that I'm not suggesting we explicitly take from some people and give to others in a way that only helps these people, even if it's only helping them directly. I think indirectly, this is an investment into what America should be and what what our potential is as a country um, and as citizens. Josie, do you do you think that argument can can sustain in the context of a presidential race? Look, like I, my expectations are extremely low for <laughs> for what um, for what can translate to people in a lot of ways because I am aware I I still remember what happened a couple of years ago and I know that like pre- I, I know that presidential campaigns right can I mean I my first I first voted in two thousand eight that was the first presidential election I could vote for so in some ways I also feel very spoiled because that was such a seminal moment of um, of inspiration and I don't know that. I think since then I've felt generally disappointed every time a presidential election rolls around. I do think that people are movable, right? We see it all of the time that people can shift their perspective on things. Racism is particularly sticky um, and has a, a staying power that I think some of us are even surprised by now. But I think that engaging with the idea on in good faith and um, presenting it in the realm of possibility, there is Yes, I do think that um, that it could be less catastrophic than we imagine. Um, I, I think that even thinking about ta writing that article uh, four years ago, uh, five years ago, because when I started the article, I thought this will never work. I was reading it. I started reading. And I was like, this is what, a, what an interesting idea. This will never work. By the end of the article, I was convinced. So, you know, I think people can change their minds and that we owe it to these presidential candidates should not just be um, leading on policy, but leading on, on, on values. And they actually owe it to the world to stand up for what they believe to be right um, and use and, and they should be able to convince us of this, right? If they if they deserve this job, they should be able to convince us that this is um, good policy. Yeah, I just use the term in good faith. And I don't I don't yeah, think many it's people an interesting think that term, president, right? Yeah, presidential campaigns <laughs> don't usually argue anything in good faith, let alone something right. this. Um, and also, obviously, you have a plenty of political science to point out that the you know, the President Trump maximized his vote by encouraging people to believe that the other person is getting something and you're not. And it's as a result of that, that you're ha- you're in the place you are. And there's been some even really interesting Dan Hopkins just did a paper on this about where the vote switched and whether that um, area had a direct rela- impact, whether it was direct impact between um, local demographic changes, which is to say immigration. Turns out there wasn't. So inflaming the idea on the other side has had some benefit for the for the incumbent. Um, and so this argument would fall in that context as well. So I just wonder whether, you know, the, the president, a presidential campaign is one in which you can have an in good faith argument uh, about something this yeah. complicated. You know, I think that is um, that goes in tandem with a population where, again, 
there has been so much austerity, so little investment in communities all across America, not just black communities, right? Communities of color, poor communities um, of any color, including white people. We're talking about people that it actually does, to some extent, make sense that they feel that something is being, if, if they, you know, if they give their, they don't have much to give, right? In a lot of these places, they have not been treated um fairly by their government. They have not been invested in. And so the idea that there is a fixed pie where there might not actually be a fixed pie is not completely without logic. I think what I hope to see from the Democratic Party is to explain that the government works for the people, right? And that there are services and provisions that the government should be making into people that vary across need, that reparations should be part of that conversation. But that doesn't mean that we don't talk about the fact that schools are bad in in Appalachia, right? That um, people in rural America don't have all the things that they need to actually be able to sustain a living and and help their families. That, you know, there are places where there is not a doctor for 100 miles in this country. These are important conversations that I hope in tandem can shift the idea that if you have something, I must not have it anymore. The fixed pie has been a consistent idea on the on the right for for decades, and I'm hoping that we can finally start to tear at that a little bit. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're uh, eating a piece of fixed pie and having a strong draft beer, mulled wine with it, John, what are you going to be chattering about? I uh, will be chattering about something that's um, I just learned about. In fact, I'm sure there's an Atlas Obscura piece about it, but. Um, uh, was the sculptor Anne Coleman Ladd who, after the First World War, went to Paris and used her talents as a sculptor to create these incredibly lifelike and elaborate masks for men who had been horribly injured by the mechanistic warfare of the First World War. Wow. These facial differences, Mm. as they're uh, called, that were created by um, these awful weapons um, that had, and and she created, and you and just look up the video um, using. uh, We'll put something on a link on the show page, but um, basically re uh, returned these lives to these men. They used to talk about um, going to the. their room to get the tin their tin noses because it was built Whoa, some of these masks were these built are out of, amazing yeah out of tin and um she basically saved the dignity of these um of these men who were who had been horribly disfigured and uh but as an act of art and charity um it's uh it's really amazing what she was able to do these are astonishing yeah it's wow. incredible uh top that Josie Duffy Rice, what's your chatter? Good luck. Um, Fortunately, it's not a visual medium podcasting, so our listeners have no idea what we're looking at. (laughs) It's rather, I'm sorry about that, gang. (laughs) Um, I just finished a book by Hanif Abdurraqib called Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest. I have never been a particularly huge A Tribe Called Quest fan. I liked them, but I did not know a lot about them. But Hanif is just one of the best writers I think, of our time. He has written a couple of other books, one that was a book of um, music criticism and then also a book of poetry, but his writing is just incredible. And this book, regardless of how you feel about A Tribe Called Quest or if you don't have any feelings on them at all, is just an incredible, incredible book to read. I can't stop thinking about it and talking about it, and I um, recommend it highly. 
I have a couple of quick chatters. One is I strongly commend to you the New York Times story about the hunt for the wasp. The wasp was an aircraft carrier mm. sunk by Japanese torpedoes in the Pacific in 1942 and lost. No one knew where it went down. It was, a, it was I think, the only aircraft carrier who, whose location was never known. And it's about the divers funded by Paul Allen and Paul Allen's estate um, and their underwater exploration crew who go out in the Pacific last summer, I think it is, to find this boat. And it's a it's an amazing story, a gr- really gripping tale of how you do undersea exploration. Also, um, just a note about another podcast that friend friend of Slate, former colleague of ours at Slate, Catherine Goldstein, has called The Double Shift, which is about working mothers, about what it is to be a working mother. And she has a really lovely episode about Ashton Clemens, who is a mother of three who ran for the house in the state house in North Carolina. It's about what it is to run for office as a mother of three kids. Also, listeners, of course, you are doing uh, some cocktail chattering yourselves and sending us your great chatters. And you're usually tweeting us to them at, at Slate GabFest, sometimes posting them on Facebook at facebook.com slash GabFest. And this week's listener chatter is from Andrew and Lauren Lentz, and it is extremely John Dickersonian. So I was just going to read... Andrew and Lauren Lentz's note to us. Quote, just finished reading Doris Kearns Goodwin's Leadership in Turbulent Times. One of her main observations is that some of our best leaders, quote, find time and space in which to think, end quote, before committing to a particular course of action. In our current era with social media and the constant pressure on leaders to dictate the terms of social media discourse in real time, is it even possible for leaders to find this time to reflect anymore? And if not, what are the consequences for our country? John big question. Mm, yeah, in fact, in fact, when the president's uh, executive time became the subject of a lot of uh, uh, giggling, I talked to Dan Pink, um, who uh, who's a great writer and thinks about productivity and executive function and all the things that need to make us um, uh, successful in the world. And there are lots of people who who take this time out and use it to think productively. The point is not to take the time out, but then how you actually use it. Right, right. <laughs> That is our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. And Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Special thanks to the indefatigable, imperturbable Alan Pang of CBS here at the CBS Studio. Thank you, Alan. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGabFest and tweet your cocktail chatter to us there. You should come to our live show in D.C. on March 27th. That's just two weeks away. And in Charlottesville on April 12th. And get tickets for either of those shows at slate.com slash live for Josie Duffy Rice. Excellent guest. Come back Thank anytime, you. Josie. And John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, good to see you. Can't see you, really. Good to speak to you. Good to hector you, as we do every week. Good to shout loudly in your ear. Anyway, Slate Plus, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, said this week she didn't – I actually don't have the quote in front of me. But basically the gist of it was she doesn't want to consider impeaching the president right now, even though she thinks he's unfit for office because the way to defeat him is at the ballot box and that there really isn't enough time and space to get this done. So it's clearly a tactical decision because she doesn't think he is fit to be president. But is it uh, it the correct tactical decision? Josie, do you have a thought on whether – whether giving up on impeachment or sort of raising the bar on impeachment to a, to a very high level is the way uh, the House should go now. 
her answer is the right one for right now. We're still waiting on a report from um, the special prosecutor. We are trying to establish some power among the congressional Democrats that they haven't had in a few years. We are looking at a president that still has not a lot of support, certainly, but he's not He's not in single-digit approval ratings. And the idea that, like, right now we would begin to engage in the impeachment process actually does not seem reasonable to me or or practical. That could change, obviously, as anything could change in a world where Donald Trump is at the helm any second of any day. But for right now, I thought that was actually right, although I think her faith that we can beat him at the ballot box is might, might be misplaced. I'm hopeful, but not... Um, not totally convinced. But no, I don't think that right now is the right time to start talking about impeachment in any real practical way. John, any thoughts on this as a tactical move? I think it was smart. You may remember one of the, that I wrote a piece for Slate 18 million years ago when she took over as speaker in which she went on to, um, she was on, I think it was Meet the Press and basically said, oh yeah, we're going to investigate George W. Bush. And it seemed tactically a bad idea, you know, because Democrats were just newly in power and and the goal at the time was, let's raise the minimum wage, let's um, you know, advocate for all of these things we've wanted to have when we get into power. Um, so I think she's learned a version of that lesson. I think, though, that this is a perfect um, – this is what you would say be- because, A – That was just a teaser, GapFest listeners, to listen to the rest of our Slate Plus conversation. Join Slate Plus now at slate.com slash GabFestPlus. Slate Plus is celebrating its fifth anniversary this year, so we're throwing parties across the country just for our members. Enjoy a festive evening with some of your favorite Slatesters over drinks for a fun night of conversation and trivia. And the first drink is on us. And thank you. Whether you've been a member for five years or five days, your support makes our work possible. We're hosting parties on April 3rd in D.C., Brooklyn, and San Francisco. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and info. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.